Our passage for this morning is James 1, 22 to 27. So if you would, please open your Bible to so James chapter 1. Again, that's James 1, 22 to 27. I don't know if you remember this or not, but a few months back when we were discussing God's purposes and trials, I told you that as of late I had been wrestling with a kind of anxiety. This seems to happen every so often. I'll I'll start preparing for a particular passage, and as I'm trying to think through the implications of the passage, it seems like God will put some sort of obstacle or experience in my path that directly relates to the subject I'm about to preach on. Well, this happened in the fall as I was preparing to preach on trials. I'm getting ready to discuss how God uses suffering to sanctify us, how He'll even reveal our idols through the use of trials, and and then all of a sudden, I find myself struggling with a kind of hypochondria. I'm still not entirely sure where that whole episode came from. There wasn't anything externally that seemed to cause it, and and I'm over it now, by the way, for the most part. It hasn't really bothered me for a couple months. Uh, But at the time, I used this as an illustration of how God reveals our idols through trials. I said He doesn't cause us to sin, but He will occasionally use trials to uncover our sin. And I said that in this instance, I was learning how I had been placing my hope in my physical strength uh, rather than in heaven. Now again, at the time, there was nothing happening externally to cause this anxiety, at least nothing major. Uh, You know, a mole that I had had for years uh, in my mind now became stage 4 melanoma. Uh, An abrupt increase in migraine headaches was most certainly the result of a silent brain tumor, uh, that sort of thing. There was no no consistency uh, of symptoms from one month to the next other than my paranoia, my sin. Well, one day that suddenly changed. Emily comes home from the gym, and after hearing me talk about this stuff for a couple months, she says, you know, I think we should look into purchasing some cancer insurance for you. You see, a large part of the reason why I'm so paranoid about my health is because my family has a long history of really weird cancers on both sides. So Emily comes home from the gym, and finally she's agreeing with me. She says, you you know, you're probably right. It probably isn't a matter of if you'll get cancer, but when. I figure, figure, you know, it won't be for another 10 or 20 years, but either way, it'd probably be wise to look into getting cancer insurance. So we're talking about this, and as we're talking about it, believe it or not, I feel a lump in my calf about the size of a golf ball, and it feels like it's attached to my bone. It's not moving. I have Emily check it out, and she agrees. She says, yeah, it's pretty weird. That's not normal. And I should probably go to the doctor and get it checked out. Now, I should have you know, if Emily says that something's wrong with me, that's when I really start to panic, because she's the one that usually tells me that I'm imagining things. Okay. So as you can expect, I'm, I'm, start, I'm panicking by this point. Uh, up to this point, I, I, there, there wasn't any real symptoms to indicate that there was anything wrong with me. I could at least tell myself then that my concerns were imaginary. But now there was a very real and, and very scary lump in my leg. I go to the doctor the next day. The doctor feels the lump. And he, he, just, he feels it and he goes, huh. 
Now, I don't know about you, but I don't, I don't really feel very good when the doctor feels something on my body and just goes, huh. Like, huh, that's weird. I'm not really sure what that is. That's not a comforting reaction, right? When the doctor's confused by your body. Uh, he's moving my leg and he's asking me, you know, he's like, he's like you, you sure that doesn't hurt? I tell him, no, not at all. And finally, he says, well, I, you know, I don't think it's anything major, but there's definitely something there, so we better get it checked out. And he orders a CAT scan. And now, again, like, I'm, I'm really panicking. It's level 10 alert at this point. Uh, I mean, I know the doctor said that there probably wasn't anything major, but come on, I've been through this sort of thing before. Uh, I know they'll just say that to keep the patient calm until the tests come in. Even if they do think it's major, they won't say that, right, until there's tests to prove it. So I get the CAT scan done on Friday. I'm told the results won't come in on, until Monday. And I'm on pins and needles the whole weekend. I'm doing all this research about all the different types of, types of bone cancers that can occur in the fibula, uh, which, by the way, there aren't many. It's weird to have a tumor on your, fib, on your fibula. In fact, there are only two main types that will occur. One's called an osteochondroma. That's a benign tumor. The other is an osteosarcoma which is malignant. So I'm, I'm thinking this is it. My, my genetics have finally caught up to me. Uh, this is my weird cancer. I'm learning about how to treat osteosarcoma and about the operations they do to remove part of the fibula and all that. I'm remembering the, the chemotherapy sessions that my mom went through. My mom had uh, appendix cancer. She died of appendix, appendix cancer. Again, weird cancers. And I, I'm remembering that and how she was sick all the time. And, I, and I'm bracing myself for that sort of a future. Monday comes and goes, and there's no phone call from the doctor. I'm thinking, that's it. Something's got to be wrong. They're discussing a treatment plan or something like that. That's why they haven't gotten back to me. Tuesday rolls around. My phone rings. I check my phone. It's the doctor's phone number. I take a deep breath, and I answer. Hello? Yes, am I speaking with Ryan Jokey? And it isn't the doctor's voice on the other side of the line. It's the office receptionist. It is. I answer. Hi, this is the receptionist over at Dr. Hafner's office. And here it comes, I'm thinking, they want me to schedule an appointment to, to make, talk about treatment plans. And then she says, the doctor wanted me to call to inform you that you have a benign bone condition. A benign bone condition, I say. Yes? So is that it? Do you need me to come into the office or anything like that? No, she says. Okay, thank you. And I hang up. And that was that. Uh, and by the way, that, ladies and gentlemen, was how God helped me work through my hypochondria. <laughs> like, uh, through, that, through that whole episode, he helped me see that, as Jesus says, worrying right, will not add a single hour to my life, nor, for that matter, will it necessarily take one away. It's all in his hands. But the reason why I bring this up today is to help illustrate the purpose of today's message. You see, not every type of disease or illness needs to be treated in other words, it's not enough to simply identify that something's gone wrong with the body. It's also uh, essential that you identify how serious the condition is before you decide to treat it. The severity of the disease will determine whether or not you do anything about it. For example, in my case, there was absolutely no doubt that something had gone wrong with my leg. But the question was, how serious was that something? If the doctor had looked at the CAT scan and determined that it was an osteosarcoma, 
then they probably would have decided to operate. They would have probably removed the top half of my fibula. They'd be sending me for all type of blood work and biopsies to determine the extent to which the cancer might have spread through my body. After that, they'd be deciding whether or not I should be pursuing some type of chemo or radiation treatment. And and that's all because an osteosarcoma is a very serious condition, serious enough to kill me. As it is, my doctor decided my condition wasn't even serious enough to require a follow-up visit. Yeah, there's definitely something wrong with my leg, but it's entirely benign. It'd actually do more harm than good to do anything about it, so best just leave it as it is. Well, in the same way, we've spent the past few weeks identifying a kind of spiritual disease from James 1, to 27. And that disease, for lack of a better term, is memory loss. And it's identifiable by the disconnect between a believer's life And their doctrine. The fact is, the gospel proclaims certain truths, truths which, when believed, should revolutionize a person's life. It should change the way someone relates both to God and to other people. It should lead a person, for instance, to be eager to forgive others, since God has so forgiven them. It should lead them to want to sacrifice themselves for others, since Christ has so sacrificed himself for them. And perhaps most of all, it should lead them to be merciful since they themselves are objects of God's undeserved mercy and favor. And and the reason why the Christian should want to do all of this is because of the freedom that God has granted them in Christ. He's rescued them from the penalty and the power of sin, so that in the words of Paul, those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. So the Christian should want to sacrifice and forgive And show mercy because they've been redeemed in order to glorify God and these things bring glory to God. Unfortunately, as James writes this letter, that doesn't appear to be the sort of attitude manifesting itself in the lives of his readers. There's suffering going on in the church, but rather than demonstrate mercy to the brethren, Christians are withholding their goods for one another. Uh, Those who are being wronged in this way apparently want to lash out at the injustice of it all rather than forgive. And the ones who need to be corrected for their behavior don't want to be. They want to remain committed to their earthly status and comfort rather than live for the glory of God. This kind of attitude is completely inconsistent with the kind of obligations that flow out of the gospel's message of redemption. And so as James sees this taking place, he compares it to a kind of memory loss. He says it's like a man who looks at his face in a mirror only to walk away and immediately forget what he looks like. In other words, just like the mass in my leg indicates that something has gone wrong with the bone growth in my fibula, so also does the lack of application, the lack of performance, indicate that something has gone wrong in the growth of a believer. And that's what we've been studying together for the past several weeks. The problem of mere knowledge. The problem of simply knowing the truth without doing it. So now we can see the problem. We can feel the mass lurking beneath the layers of our hypocrisy. The question now becomes, how serious is it? Again, we can see that something's wrong, but is it something we need to take care of? Or is it something that we can just let go? Is this a benign sort of tumor, or is it more threatening than that? That's the question that we're going to look at this morning as we now turn our attention to the result 
of mere knowledge. James has already helped us see the problem of mere knowledge, the, the problem with knowledge that's inherently inconsistent. The problem with it is that it's inherently inconsistent with the proper understanding of the gospel. So now what's the result? How serious is this thing? Do we need to get it treated? Let's see what James says in James 1, 22 to 27. Let's read the passage in its context, starting in verse 19. James says, Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word. And not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. If anyone thinks he is religious... And does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So now, what is the result of mere knowledge? What is the outcome? What does it produce? Uh, The answer is perhaps best stated in verse 26. When James says, If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. The word there is mateos in the Greek. It means something like idle or empty, this word for worthless. The idea is that mere knowledge produces nothing. In other words, I guess you could say that this kind of knowledge is benign. But it's benign in the absolute worst kind of way. It's benign in the sense that it doesn't produce anything. But the problem is that it's supposed to do something. If I could jump back to an analogy that I used a couple weeks ago, James is essentially saying that this kind of knowledge is like a placebo. It's a sugar pill that doesn't have any real medicinal effect. And that's actually what makes it so dangerous. The idea is is that sin is the disease. Sin, that's the malignant cancer that produces death. And it's ravaging the Christian. And it's tearing up the body of Christ. and, And the gospel is supposed to be the chemotherapy treatment that goes about attacking this disease. But what James sees is that his readers have taken a sugar pill instead And that's what makes it so dangerous. Mere knowledge produces absolutely nothing. It's completely worthless. So what does James mean by this statement? In what way is mere knowledge worthless? Or to frame it still another way, what kind of outcomes are we supposed to expect through the acquisition and application of the gospel which aren't happening when we fail to apply it? I mean, that's a valid question, isn't it? 
Like if, if this is a, a medicine that we're taking that's supposed to treat the bone tumor, then, then what's going to be the consequence if we fail to get it treated properly? I'm sure that's a question you probably ask if the doctor got a CAT scan back and started urging you to seek treatment. You'd want to know, why? What's wrong with me? What's going to happen if I don't do anything? You wouldn't just want a diagnosis, you'd want the prognosis. You'd say, what are we looking at here? How serious is this thing? Because the answer to that question would let you know the urgency of the treatment. It would let you know the kind of intensity that you need to take in treating it. It's the same here. How serious is this problem? If we don't get rid of this, the, the, uh, the placebo and, and start taking the real thing, then what's going to happen to us? The answer to that question should tell us how urgent we need to be in getting the problem taken care of. And to that question, I think James would offer, I think he would offer at least four different answers. Four different answers. In other words, I don't think he has just a single application in mind here when he says that this, is, this kind of religion is worthless. I think he's using a broad term, and he's using it because he means it broadly. There are several senses in which this kind of religion is worthless. And we can see this from the surrounding context of this passage. So in what way is mere knowledge worthless? Once again, I think James would provide at least four different answers to this question. And the first answer is this. Number one, answer number one, mere knowledge will not resolve the problems that so often face the church. Mere knowledge will not resolve the problems that so often face the church. This, this seems to be the most immediate application of this statement in verse 26, meaning if I had to pick just one of these four answers and say James most definitely means this when he says that you know this type of religion is worthless, this is the one that I would go with. This is the one that he most clearly has in mind when he says this kind of religion is worthless. As we've been working through these verses, I've sort of packaged them with what James says back in verses 19 to 21. That's where we start when we read the passage week to week, right? We start back in verse 19. In verses 19 to 21, you'll remember, James talks about how the anger of man does not produce, does not produce the righteousness of God. You hear that? It does not produce the righteousness of God, meaning it doesn't bring about a beneficial result. You might even say that the anger of man is vain, right? It's empty. It's worthless. We discussed this. I said at its core, anger is energy directed at a perceived injustice. And that doesn't mean that the things we're mad about are always actual injustices. It's just a perceived injustice. And the energy that's stirred up in our emotions are aimed at fixing that problem. The only problem is that our sinful anger doesn't do this. Instead, it tends to exacerbate the problem. It makes it worse, usually by provoking the other person into their own expressions of sinful anger. This is what James means by the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. You can go around trying to correct injustice with sinful expressions of anger, and you will try and try in vain. It simply won't work. And so James tells his readers... I know you're angry at what's going on in the church. I know you realize this is wrong. But before you act, you need to stop, take a breath, and start listening to the other person before you speak your mind. 
The way sinful anger works, it only wants to give vent to its own desires. That's because sinful anger isn't done in love. It isn't concerned for the other person's desires, just its own, so it tends not to listen. It tends to talk instead. In light of this, James urges his readers to be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to, an- slow to anger. And the idea is that, is, is that if his readers are going to start actually fixing the problems that they're running into, then they're going to have to learn to first pause and realign their desires according to God's desires before they start speaking. So that's what James was saying back in verses 19 to 21. And now, as we come down to verses 22 to 27, it should become apparent that James has actually never changed his topic. He's still talking about more or less the same thing. Take the way he starts off verse 22. He says, but, meaning he's about to contrast what he's about to say with what he just said. So he's not entirely changing topics, just adding some specificity to it. Be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, but, and then he says, be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. You see what James is doing there. He says, be quick to hear, but don't just hear. You guys see that? He just said, be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. He's telling his readers, slow down, don't act too quickly. And the danger in that admonition is that it can lead his readers to be spiritually inert. Remember, there are actual sins taking place in the church. Sins that need to be addressed. So what's going to happen to the church if no one ever speaks up to address those sins? What's going to happen if everyone is suddenly too polite to ever dig into someone else's spiritual life and say, hey, you need to shape up. What you're doing here isn't Christian. You probably already know the answer to that, right? What happens when everyone is actually, you know, quote, too nice... To address other people's sins. The church ends up, filled with, filled, uh, ends up filled with hypocrites, doesn't it? I mean, yeah, people may get along, but they won't grow that way. That's the danger in James' admonition. It can be taken to mean, don't talk about each other's sin. And that's not what James means at all. He's not saying, don't speak the truth to one another. He's just telling them, speak it in love. It's the love part that's missing. It's like what Paul says in Colossians 4, 6 when he writes, Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. In the Old Testament, salt was used as a purifying agent. What Paul is saying there is, he isn't saying don't speak. He's saying before you speak, let your speech be purified, so that when you do speak, it's done in wisdom. That's the same sort of thing that James is after. And so now he balances his admonition to be quick to hear and slow to act by saying, but be sure that you do eventually act. Don't just pause to realign your thoughts with Scripture. Act on it. And when someone confronts you, don't just hold your tongue and hear what they have to say. No, receive their correction and actually act on it. This last point of emphasis is brought out most clearly in verse 26. When James says, If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, 
but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. That goes back to verses 19 to 21. It would seem that that James is envisioning a situation where Christians are bringing the law of liberty before one another. They're, They're confronting one another with the word over their behavior. And some, dare I say perhaps even most, they're not receiving that correction. They're just getting angry and lashing out at the people who are trying to help them by reminding them of their identity in Christ. James responds to this by saying, listen, the one who doesn't do all that the gospel demands is like a man who forgets who he is. So the one who refuses to receive this correction, the one who chooses instead to deceive himself by turning that correction down, his religion is worthless. Can you guys see that? Can you follow that? Verse 26 is actually the key verse in unlocking the meaning of this entire section. You might just think that when James is talking about being a doer of the word and not a hearer only, that he just means that generally. Like he's just trying to tell us, you know, you need to apply the scripture. But it's not as simple as that. When he says, be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves, back in verse 22, and then repeats this same sort of language down in verse 26, if anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but again, deceives his heart. It becomes apparent he's not just saying, apply the scripture. Rather, he's telling his readers, receive correction. Believers are confronting one another with the gospel. They're holding up the law of liberty like a mirror and saying to the other person, how can you act this way? Can't you see who you are? Can't you see what God has called you to be? And those who are being corrected are lashing out in anger. They don't want to hear that correction. And James says that when they're doing that, they're deceiving themselves. Again, they're causing themselves to forget who they are when they shut down that correction. And he says that this kind of religion, the kind that refuses to be corrected so that the person can persist in their sin, he says that kind of religion is worthless. That's the main emphasis here. Verse 26 actually unlocks the flow of this entire passage. In fact, I'll tell you, the more I've wrestled with what James is, going, is doing down here in verses 22 to 27 and what he's saying in verse 26 in particular, uh, actually, the more I realize I've made a, a bit of a mistake. Uh, back when we were in verses 19 to 21, I spoke as if the person who needs to be slow to speak is the one doing the correcting. And the more I thought about it, the more I realized that James is probably primarily speaking to the one who is receiving the correction here. Now, to be clear, I think James does have both persons in mind. After all, back in verse 19, he does say, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. So I, I do think he, he has uh, the one doing the correcting in mind as well. And I think this will become particularly clear as we jump into chapter 3, when he talks about not many becoming teachers because of the kind of damage that an undisciplined tongue can do. He'll speak about bridling the tongue there as well. And that most certainly seems to do with the one doing the correcting. In James 4, 11 and 12, James also speaks of not judging our brothers, since the one who judges their brother is not a doer of the law, but a judge of it. 
So I do think that James is telling the one who wants to correct, stop and consider the law of liberty before you speak. He's telling them to bridle their tongue. But even more so, I think right here he's speaking to the one who's receiving the correction. Again, like what's happening here, you know, one wing of the church is saying, you can't go around calling yourself a Christian and not take care of the brethren. And the other wing, which is being corrected, wants to say back, well, that's not the gospel. The gospel says that I'm saved by grace through faith. You can't condemn me on the basis of my works. You can't tell me that there's a certain standard that I have to live by. That would undermine the work of Christ. And James is saying to this latter group, no, 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 your brothers are right. The way you're acting is inconsistent with the gospel. True religion is expressed in dedication to God and to the care of orphans and widows. And so if you're not going to receive that correction, you're deceiving yourselves. Now again, he's also telling the one doing the confronting, be careful in how you confront. But I'd say that primarily he's speaking to the one being confronted and he's telling them and you, don't rush to defend yourself. Hold your tongue and don't just restrain your anger. Listen to them because they're right. If you do not do what the gospel proclaims, then you're deceiving yourself. Your so-called religion is worthless. I think this point is even emphasized when James has to explain the meaning of true religion in verse 27. It's the person who's not practicing that standard that needs to bridle their tongue primarily. And that's the Christian who's being corrected with the law of liberty in this context. So again, can you see where I'm going here? The subject has not changed since verses 19 to 21. James is still talking about the right way to go about both giving and receiving correction. So now, let's recap, okay? What does James mean when he says that this kind of approach to religion, this failure to gaze into the law of liberty and then do what it says, is worthless? Once again, there are several implications of this idea, many of which I hope are already becoming apparent. But I think the chief implication, the main one that James has in mind, is that this kind of religion will not resolve the problems that are facing the church. Again, going back to verse 20, the anger of man does not produce, does not produce the righteousness of God. That's what the teachers in this context are trying to achieve with their confronting. They see injustice and unrighteousness in the church, and they're trying to fix it with their ungodly correction. James says that the one who doesn't bridle his tongue but deceives themselves, meaning the teacher who refuses to go and remember what the gospel says about both them and their brother before confronting them, he says that person's religion is worthless. It isn't going to achieve anything. See, the the law of liberty proclaims that their brother is not condemned simply on the basis of their failure to love perfectly. After all, we all struggle to do that, do we not? So if the first would just take the time to reflect upon the law of liberty before correcting their brother, then they would be reminded of the fact that God is gracious to them in their sin. He showed them mercy when they did not deserve it. He forgave them, and He's also patient with them daily as He bears with them in their ongoing sin. When a person remembers those things, it should change the attitude they take when they go and correct someone else, shouldn't it? That's the whole point of 
the parable of the unforgiving servant in Matthew 19. The servant who has been forgiven the great and unpayable debt should most certainly, therefore, be gracious to their fellow servant and the very little debt that they owe. The gospel should soften the corrector's approach. It should make them come to correct with a spirit of gentleness, displaying mercy and grace to the one who's in sin, because that's the way they want God to deal with them in Christ. It will cause them to put the other person's concerns and well-being before their own, since that's what Christ has done for us. Well, it's, it's that sort of attitude and correction that will actually draw out repentance. Not the first kind. Not the, not the judgmental, self-righteous kind. That's only going to increase strife. Again, we've talked about this before. It's grace that heaps coals upon the heads of our persecutors. We read that today in Romans 12. When we come to people demanding that they consider our needs, when we come with sinful anger demanding justice for their sins, that only serves to provoke their anger as they see our unrighteousness. And so James says to the first person, you have to understand, if you don't do this, if you don't bridle your tongue and put on the gospel first, your religion is worthless. It's not going to solve anything. It will achieve nothing. It's worthless. And conversely, to the one receiving the correction. This same admonition applies. The gospel tells them that, yes, they need to care for their brethren with the same kind of sacrificial love that God has shown to them. It tells them that God has called them out of the world and set them apart for this purpose. And even more than this, it tells them that when they are confronted with sin and they're discovered to be in error, there's no reason to deny their error. Since the gospel says that if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But if these second individuals fail to receive this sort of gospel correction that their brothers are offering them, if they do not separate themselves from the ungodly thinking that is causing them to forget these truths and ignore their brethren, then there's going to continue to be conflict in the church. Right? I mean, it's not going to go away. Because they're the source of it. It's primarily their sin that needs to be corrected. So if they refuse to change, it's going to remain. Their sin is going to continue to provoke their brother's anger. So this kind of religion, the type that hears the truth but does not do it, it's worthless in the sense that it will not solve the problems that so often face the church. This is so important, I think, for a church to hear what James is saying here. There there are so many different kinds of conflicts that a church can face. Because we don't have unity at the beginning of our faith. I mean, part of the beauty of the gospel is that the church is made up of all different types of people from different backgrounds who, who are bound to see things differently. And then beyond this, the gospel tells us that we come out of the world as sinners whose indwelling sin causes us to sin against one another. We don't have unity at the beginning of our faith. But in Ephesians 4, Paul says that we grow into it as we speak the truth to one another in love. The body grows into maturity as we continually confront one another over our error and sin. Well, that that building up process requires a great deal of grace on both ends. The one who speaks the truth needs to speak it in grace, just as the one who receives it needs to receive it in grace. Otherwise, the church is only going to tear itself apart as unloving counsel is hatefully rejected by the ones who need it. 
Knowledge is useful when it's administered and received in love. The church is gradually healed when that kind of communication is taking place. There's medicine in that kind of speech. And what produces this sort of communication process? It's the law of liberty. It's when we remember who we are in Christ that we will both correct and then also receive correction in love and so grow into Christ-likeness. So what is the result of mere knowledge? What's going to happen if this problem is not treated? It's very simple. The body will die. Sin will continue to tear apart the church until there's nothing left but a lifeless corpse. Listen, this is a, this is a terminal disease that we're dealing with. Sin produces death. So if you short-circuit short this communication process that's designed to heal the body with your self-righteousness and pride, what you'll find is that the cancer will continue to spread until the body is good and dead. Unfortunately, it's a story that's been told far too often in far too many churches. We see it all around us. Dead and dying churches or churches filled with hypocrisy all because they never learned how to speak the truth to one another in love. And with this in mind, I would urge you, listen to what James is saying here. And don't only hear it, right? But do it. Remember who you are in Christ before you go around correcting other people. And in the same way, remember who you are when you receive correction. Because it's the only way that the church is going to survive. Once again, I think this is the primary implication that James has in mind when he says that this kind of religion is worthless. What are the others? Uh, I think we can derive at least three more answers to this question from the context, and for time's sake, I'm going to try to hit each of these rather quickly. Uh, I think the next two should be pretty easy to grasp from what we've discussed so far, and we'll actually spend an entire message discussing the third um, as we get into chapter two. Um, The second answer is this. In what way is mere knowledge worthless? Answer number two, mere knowledge will not lead to the blessing of righteousness. It will not lead to the blessing of righteousness. Again, the context for what is happening here is is up in verse 19 to 21 when James begins to tell his readers to put on the gospel as they correct one another. Well, if you recall, as he urges them to do this, he says in verse 21, uh, Therefore put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. Uh, He says all this on the heels of discussing the benefit of trials. And if you recall, when, when we discussed that verse, I said that the idea seems to be that conflict can in and of itself, be a kind of trial which comes about for our sanctification. I mean, that's clearly the case when we're being corrected, right? But even in the case of the one doing the correction, the things that I get angry at in others often reveal my own idols. I get simply angry because of the things I want. The other person's sin exposes that. And so as James urges his readers to be patient both in correcting and in being corrected, he says, receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. When we discussed that passage, I said that the the first part of that has to do with what James says 
Back in verse 18, God brings us forth by the word of truth, the word of truth, right? James says that we should be a kind of first fruit of his creatures. He saves us for our holiness. And that's what's happening in the conflict. God is sanctifying the desires of James' readers as their sinful desires are being exposed by their anger towards one another. James says to receive that correction in meekness. And in the second part of this statement, he does so on the basis of the fact that this implanted word is able to save their souls. That should remind James readers of the goodness of God's intent and correction. Again, they're, they're facing trials and they wonder, does God want me to stumble? Is he trying to make me sin? James says, no, no, that's not what's happening. God is saving you. So the reason why he's having you go through the trials is because he loves you. And this is true for the Christian. Paul says that God causes all things to come together for good, including trials, including conflicts, for good for those who love God and are called according to His purpose. So when God exposes the sin of the Christian, He doesn't do it in order to harm the Christian, right? But to bless them. That's because there is blessing in righteousness. It's just like what I said last week. There are obligations that flow out of the gospel. This is a law of liberty that James is speaking of. But at the same time, it's a law of liberty. Of liberty. There's blessing that comes when a person obeys these obligations. It's a privilege to do this. Of course, this is not to say that that these blessings are always what the world would claim to be blessings. That's why it's so essential, right, that we keep ourselves unstained from the world. They're going to confuse our understanding of what's good. So these aren't what they would call blessings, but all the same, they're real blessings. God frees us from our idolatry so that we can enjoy Him. Again, like I said last week, worship just isn't just an obligation, it's a privilege. I mean, we get to see His glory and be awed by it. The one who refuses to be corrected by conflict, therefore, is cheating themselves out of this blessing. James brings this out in verse 25 when he says, That the one who does what they hear is blessed in their doing. The one who only hears doesn't receive that blessing. They don't get that kind of blessing because they refuse to be corrected. They won't bridle their tongue. So then what are the consequences of, of this type of religion? What is the law of liberty supposed to do once again, which it won't do if a person only hears it without acting on it? The answer is that they will not experience the blessing of righteousness. If I were to go back to our cancer analogy, the idea is that the patient is going to suffer. That's the problem with cancer, right? It doesn't just kill, but it often does so in a way that it produces incredible discomfort. Well, that's what happens to the person who dies in their sin. They don't just die. They die a painful death. Hebrews 12 says that God disciplines those He loves and that while the discipline hurts to those who've been trained by it, it produces the peaceful fruit of righteousness. In other words, no, trials don't feel good. Conflicts don't feel good. But they do produce a kind of health that does feel good. Just like chemotherapy doesn't feel good, but it does produce the health, right, that feels good. That's what James is saying here as well with those who receive correction. Listen, the one who rejects the correction of the word, either as they prepare to correct, 
or as they receive correction. They don't get that. It's just like we saw a minute ago. Their sin isn't going to fix anything. If anything, it's only going to exacerbate their situation. It's not just true externally in their relationships with one another, but even internally as they struggle with their idols as well. So the one who practices this kind of religion, their religion is worthless in the sense that it will not bring them the blessing that comes with spiritual health. Their life is going to be filled with the kind of suffering that comes with bondage to sin. Remember, temptation only it promises blessing, but it brings death. That will be the outcome of this kind of religion. Again, it's absolutely worthless. It will not produce anything good. Once again, why is mere knowledge worthless? Number one, we've seen it will not solve the problems the church so often faces. Number two, it will not lead to the blessing of righteousness. And now, answers number three and four. Let's look at these together. Answers number three and four. Let's look at these together. Answer number three, mere knowledge does not glorify God. Once again, it will not glorify God. And number two, mere knowledge will not end in salvation. Once again, it will not save. I put these two ideas together because they're sort of connected. The point in the third answer is rather simple. Back in verse 18, James says that God brings us forth to be a kind of first fruits of His creatures. He saves us so that we can glorify Him. The one who merely hears the word without doing it, they don't do that. Right? In, in fact, they kind of do the exact opposite of that. Jesus says, Matthew 5, 14-16, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. I, I, I'd suspect that you could grasp the meaning of the imagery that Jesus is using here, right? Yeah, no one would walk into a room, flip on a lamp, and then go, wow, what just happened? You know, that hurt my eyes, and then, and then run over and throw a blanket over it, or something like that. I mean, that would be counterintuitive to turning the light on in the first place. The very purpose of the lamp is to give light. That's why you turn it on, so that it can, you can see. Well, Jesus says it's the same with those who God calls. The whole reason why God gives them the light of truth, the light of the gospel, is so that people can see that truth in the lives of His people and they give thanks to God for His grace. You see, this is the reason for for your sanctification, this side of heaven. It isn't just for your blessing. After all, if God cared about, if all He cared about was your personal happiness or your personal holiness, then He'd just kill you. I mean, it's, it's as simple as that. If righteousness is blessing... And if He wants you to glorify you or glorify Him, then you will be both holier and happier after you die. So then why does He, number one, leave you here, and number two, demand that you strive to grow in holiness until the day that you die? And the answer is the Gospel. Or more specifically, the Great Commission. He lights the lamp so that others can see your good works and give Him glory. In short, He does it for their repentance, for their salvation. Do you get that? The, the reason why you're sanctified is for the salvation of others. And this is what James was saying back in verse 18. God brings us forth by the word of truth so that we can be a kind of first fruits of His creatures. 
Well, guess what? That doesn't happen when you're not holy. In fact, when you claim the name of Christ and then live in unrepentant sin, or when a church claims the name of Christ and then tears each other apart with their ungodly anger, actually the exact opposite of that happens. People say, you you mean that's the fruit of Christ's teachings? No way. No thank you. I don't want that. And they're hardened in their unbelief. This means that this kind of religion is worthless. It doesn't do what it's designed to do. Now, guess why that's a problem? Well, that's a problem because of what Jesus says in the verses just before He says we're the light of the world. When He says in Matthew 5.13, You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt has lost its taste, or more literally, made foolish or useless, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything, except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Again, salt was a purifying agent in the Old Testament. When Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth, He's warning His listeners that they have been called in order to purify the earth with their righteousness. That's their mission. This was true of Israel first, who was called to be a kingdom of priests, and it's true of the church now as we've taken up the mantle of their original mission. And He's saying to His listeners, Now, if the salt then loses that characteristic, if it's unable to purify the things that it comes in contact with in the way that it's designed, then what's it good for? And the answer is nothing. It's worthless. Might as well just toss it out in the street and let it be walked on because it's just a worthless hunk of rock at that point. Now listen, Jesus is delivering this warning at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount because He's warning the people of Israel, the one who does not do the standard of righteousness that I'm about to proclaim to you, that one will not be saved. They will be judged by God. Now you may think that there's no way that Jesus could have said that, because after all, salvation is by grace through faith. But consider again His thesis statement for the Sermon on the Mount. He says, Do not think... This is Matthew 5, 17-20. He says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. He says, Therefore whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. And then he explains why. He says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. See, Jesus taught taught a different standard of righteousness than what the scribes and Pharisees taught. He taught a standard of righteousness that's built, actually, upon the kind of grace and mercy that we seek from God. It's the standard of righteousness that James refers to as the law of liberty. Or even the royal law. And some thought that what Jesus meant when He said this is that He was lowering the bar when He did this because He wasn't as legally rigid as the law of Moses. Jesus says, actually, I'm not lowering the bar. I'm fulfilling it. This is the kind of righteousness that God was actually after when He gave you that law. And in case you think this means I'm soft on sin, let me be very clear here. The one who doesn't fulfill the standard of righteousness, they're not entering my kingdom. As He concludes His message, Jesus then hammers this point home over and over again. 
He says, Matthew 7, 15 to 27. I just want to read it to you. If you want to turn there, you can read it along with me. Matthew 7, 15 to 27. He's wrapping up this sermon. And listen to this. He says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. He says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. He says, everyone who then hears these words of mine, think about this, whoever hears these words of mine and does them, will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on the house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. Guys, Jesus makes it very clear here. The tree that doesn't bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. The one who claims that they know him but does not do the works he commands will be told, depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. The one who hears his his words, again, are you listening here? The one who hears his words but does not heed them, they'll be like a man who builds his house on sand. When the flood of judgment comes, he'll be swept away along with everyone else. Again, this is because this kind of faith, the one who knows but does not do, it is a worthless faith. It doesn't do what it's designed to do. It's like Jesus says in John 15, 1, to two, uh, 1 and 2. He says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, He takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, He prunes that it may bear more fruit. And as He says again in John 15, verses 5 to 6, He says, I am the vine, and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. He says, if anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. He says that the branch that doesn't bear fruit is good for nothing but to be burned. Now again, you may say, but I, but I thought salvation was by grace and not by works. And it is. But you have to listen closely to what Jesus is saying here. The one who bears fruit does what? They abide in the vine. Because Jesus says apart from Him they can do nothing. So what does that mean for the one who does not bear fruit? Right? Logically. Let's think about this. What does that mean for the one who does not bear fruit? It means that the reason they don't bear fruit is because they don't actually abide in the vine. That's what James is saying here as well. And what he's going to continue to, to develop down in chapter 2. Look back at verse 21 one more, one more time. He tells them to be quick to hear, and he explains, Therefore put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. He's urging them to receive the implanted word that's able to save their souls. And so guess what this means for the one who refuses to bridle their tongue and deceives themselves? It means that they're rejecting this implanted word. And this is how they're deceiving themselves. 
They're looking into the law of liberty and saying, yeah, I'm that. That, that describes me. And then they go away and don't act like that. And James says that's because they've deceived themselves. They've, they've actually rejected the truth. So what they saw in the mirror does not apply to them because it's not who they really are. And so in, in, in what way is this kind of man's religion worthless? Well, it's worthless because he thinks that this religion will save him, but it won't. He's a man who builds his house on sand and says to himself there, that looks good. That should keep me safe from the storm. He's deceived himself. When the flood comes, he will find no refuge. And that's not because he lost his protection from the wrath of God, but because he never was protected to begin with. He built on a bad foundation. He built on sand. And so when the floods come, he will perish. And with this in mind, as we close here this morning, I would ask you, Christian, of what value is your religion? Are you a doer of the word or a hearer only? And as you ask yourself that question, I'd urge you to examine yourself by asking, number one, how do I give correction? And number two, how do I receive it? Again, that's really the key issue here. After all, it's the one who gives correction in a way that conforms to the gospel, who demonstrates that they've received God's grace. And it's the one who will likewise receive such correction in humility, who will inevitably grow in it. It's the one who cannot correct in love, and the one who cannot be corrected, who demonstrates by their actions that they've not applied this gospel. Again, the the sower might have scattered seed on the ground, but they've not received the implanted word. Or having once received it, immediately died out for one reason or another. Point is, it's not bearing fruit because it's not a living seed. So what describes you? Do you look into the law of liberty and perform according to what you see there, or do you immediately walk away and forget? Of course, not all of us do this perfectly, but... But whether or you're realizing that you're only a partial doer of the word or whether you realize that you don't do it at all, that in fact you've never done it because you've always resisted it. No matter what condition you're in here this morning, the answer is the same. Stop resisting. Stop defending yourself. Stop making your case to protect your sin. And instead gaze into the gospel Remember the mercy and forgiveness that's shown there and then receive the correction and the blessing that is to be found in Christ. Mere knowledge will not solve the problems that confront the church. It will not lead you into the blessing of righteousness. It will not glorify God and it most certainly will not save your soul. Sin is a cancer and the only thing that can stop it is the gospel of Jesus Christ. So put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. Let's pray.